Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, along with our co-hosts, Dr. Jenna Lejeune and Dr. Brian Goff. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And every episode, we're attempting to build on an emotional toolbox. I personally believe we're all on a spectrum of mental health, from feeling pretty good, feeling pretty crappy. Let's take the shame out of the times we need to ask for help. Perfect. And we're still good with our levels? We're good. Yeah, so Nina, I want to introduce you to my co-host, Dr. Brian Goff, who is here in a beautiful blue and white checked shirt. It, it, it looks much better on radio. <laughs> it's nice it to be with nice to be with you. And Dr. Jenna Lejeune. Hi, Hi thanks for well. joining us. Yeah, super excited today to uh, welcome to the show Nina Giles. Nina, you've just written a beautiful book about your mother called The Bridesmaid's Daughter. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. What, why was it so important for you to put in the subtext from Grace Kelly's Wedding to a Woman's Shelter? What was important about well, that to you? Well, because I felt that really, that really put things into perspective um, in, a, in a very uh, quick way, you know, to let the reader know how dramatic a story it is. And that was really my goal was always to um, try to understand how this once glamorous woman fell so hard. The topic of the book is your relationship with your mother, who, by all accounts, was a glamorous woman. She was uh, a model in New York City. She was Grace Kelly's bridesmaid. She had the life that many people would call enviable. And yet the thing that I found striking was despite all of those advantages, she still went to, to a very serious mental illness. Yeah, she did. She she was a small town girl who made it big. Um you know, just pursuing her dreams of going from a small town, Steubenville, Ohio, to New York City. Um, but, you know, nobody is immune. It can happen to anybody. And she had so many of the rich risk factors that people talk about, um, trauma in her childhood. And, you know, I believe postpartum psychosis played a role. That was one of the big discoveries in writing the book to try to understand what happened. Because, all of the signs started after I was born. Really, there's nothing before that. Um, I did over 100 interviews, and nobody had anything really to say until after I was born. And you can also see it in the pictures, the difference. And that year was so difficult for her. She was, um, she'd given up her career. She was stranded on Long Island, albeit in a beautiful home. But she loved New York City. Um, so it was a series of unfortunate events, you know, the perfect storm. I want to ask just a little bit more about the family dynamic after you were born, because by all accounts, it appears that your your mother's uh, mental health problems started to be focused on you, that you were the child, that she uh, had a lot of concerns about your health, that you were the child that she brought to the doctor to have a, a lot of interventions. So do you think that she was in a, a type of psychosis from the time you were an infant all the way up until you were a teenager? No. I No, I think it started, her mental health started to deteriorate after I was born. Um, and because she was never treated, um, that's what happened. It continued to deteriorate. But I think probably 
Before I was born, she may have had some, you know, obsessive compulsive tendencies, maybe a little hypochondria. But, you know, the those tendencies were exacerbated by the postpartum psychosis. And, you know, psychosis isn't consistent, right? It's in and out. And um, there were things that I witnessed growing up that were not normal. Um, a question, I'll just put it right out there, that always comes up, you know, is Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And yeah. I've done a lot of research. And I know that my mother would never have done anything to deliberately harm me. Hmm. Um, I don't believe she was doing it for attention. There were a lot of doctor's visits and a lot of worry um, and anxiety about my health. Um, it also happened to my sisters as well. Oh, it did? Um, ah. I, I, I yeah, guess I missed not, that in the not book. To the, well, not to the extreme, you know, that it did with me. I was the youngest, so I really bore the brunt. Yeah. But um, I did find out when I was researching the book that my oldest sister had missed two years of school, and it was right after, you know, that year after I was born is when it started with her as well. Wow. It's, fascin- um, it's fascinating to me that you, uh, you have this experience where you're missing, I think you said at one time you had only gone to several weeks school within a three-year period. You had missed that much school. And it's that, worse than that. Yeah, really? What was it? People find it hard to believe. I can tell you the exact number of days because I have my school records. I attended 175 days of school between kindergarten and sixth grade. Uh, Fifth and sixth grade, I wasn't there. Uh, I think five days in fifth grade. I was left back in third grade. I would go typically the beginning of the year, and then I would just stop going. And it was very complicated because... um, You know, I've researched so many things and all of the different scenarios. Did I have school phobia? Um, And that may have played a role, but it all started with my mother's mental health. You know, I think I part of it is staying home to protect her. Um, When a child doesn't go to school on a regular basis, of course you don't want to go back without some kind of support in place. Um, I was bullied, so I didn't want to go back because of that. Then there was a piece where my mother was protecting me from that. It's fascinating because that, and I want to bring in the doctors here, that kind of dual relationship of codependence around the illness is so interesting Mm -hmm. to me. Because the one thing that I pulled out of there, uh, Nina, is that when you did go back to school, you, you caught up very, very quickly when you were allowed to be in school for any length of time. So it wasn't like you had a learning disability or you didn't like school necessarily. No. So I do want to talk about... No, that's why therapists have told me it wasn't that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so I do want to talk about that. Jenna, do you see this in families where there is, it's almost like a a secret around the illness? Yeah, I mean, psychological suffering does not happen in isolation. We're social creatures. And so when one of us is suffering, it impacts the whole family unit and very often the way that we cope with our own struggles, whether that's anything from sort of anxiety, depression, all the way to something like psychosis, um, the way that we know how to deal with that also gets put on to our loved ones as well. So we start to become um, 
more paranoid or worried or overprotective might be a, a kinder way of saying that um, for our loved ones as well. And, and maybe that's some of the dynamic that was happening with Nina. And then on the flip side, as kids, like our caretakers are literally our lifeline. Mm. And so we, yes. you know, kids are really smart and really resourceful and we'll figure out all sorts of ways to make sure that we're safe, which means keeping our primary caregivers safe. Wow. I never really considered that, that there was some um, almost instinctive way Absolutely. of keeping yourself alive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nina, does thinking about it in that respect give you kind of a, a calmer way to consider your background? If you constantly were thinking about this as, oh, it's it's traumatic, and instead started viewing mm-hmm. it through that lens of, wow, I was a pretty resourceful kid, and I was doing what I need to to keep my caregiver safe and intact. Yes. Oh, I totally feel that is the case. Um, that is part of, we were protecting each other. Wow. Beautiful. In different ways. Um, and she just overreacted to any little symptom I had. And I think, you know, it's probably suffering some kind of anxiety just uh, because of the way that our life was. And those things were just really blown out of proportion, a stomach ache. You know, that's when she would rush me to the doctor. Yeah, so it's one it wasn't of, like she was giving me anything to cause it. Yeah, right. It's, got it. It's one of the, the difficulties. That's the difference. Yeah. When, when these systems, these family systems are more closed systems, like your mom pulling you out of school, it, like completely understandable if you're standing from your mom's perspective. But the problem is now that's limiting outside feedback, right? So you and your mom and this family loop can kind of get caught in this closed system where she's not even seeing the vicious cycle. Exactly. That she's kind of quote unquote overreacting. And that's where you need the outside perspective. Yeah. How could you not have a bunch of anxiety and physical symptoms because as Jenna was saying, we're social creatures. And so even private experiences that we have, depression or anxiety or whatnot, psychosis even, that they have social implications in the way that we respond to our environment and we respond to others. And you had mentioned because of stigma, she had not been treated. And so rather than having uh, a number of resources outside of the home, uh, you were there and you carried the burden as best you could. Mm. I think it's uh, beautiful how you talk about um, the dynamic with your father, who once he learned that your mother was going to psychiatric care, actually Mm -hmm. withheld support, didn't want anyone in the neighborhood to know what she was going through. And so in so many ways, all of the resources that we would think could help a family like yours were denied even more because of stigma. It wasn't very helpful. Yeah. I, I want to move into that phase where your mother takes you to Paris. She actually, you know, pulls up roots, moves you without a job. And she's expecting at that point Grace Kelly to kind of swoop in and in some ways assist. And that never happens. Do you remember feeling the disappointment of almost this magical, royal... Um, being that was going to to be able to help your family not really coming true? Well, my main memory of that part of the story is um, meeting the private secretary, Grace's private secretary, um, in Nice and in a beautiful apartment in Nice. I don't remember, you know, I wasn't privy to the conversation. Um, So it's, 
it's hard to say. Um, I just remember being terrified when we were going back what was going to happen. But so much of it, what was going on then, was above my head, and I had to find out later from my sisters. And um, I think um, I, I know from interviews that I've done that at that time, I think Grace would like to have helped her, and in some ways she did. Um, but she was also afraid. Um, in those days, mental illness, nobody talked about it. It was a very scary thing. And so she wouldn't have known in her position how to handle that. She did tell one of the other bridesmaids, um, Judy Balaban, who wrote the book, The Bridesmaids, that that was the first time that she knew that Carolyn was really not well mm. um, because of the way that she made that journey. And, you know, I talk about in the book how there's, I remember being in the purser's office on the ship and and my father on one speaker and Grace on the other. And that was that was really something because I felt like they were not on her side. So again, I'm the protector, mm. not understanding really the reality that she's taken two daughters to France with very little money and really not... <laughs> No guarantee of income or a place to live. Brian, mm. I want you to uh, reflect on that, like the the drama of a circumstance that's so out of your control. And you're a child. And I think for all, people who grow up with a mentally ill parent, this, in, in some ways, this is a familiar setting. It's not in Paris. It's not on a ship. It's not in these glamorous places. But it is, oh, my God, they're taking me someplace and they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. How how do you um, help families navigate this period when a, an adult is in charge, but they probably shouldn't be in charge? Right. I wonder if um, children in that situation, and Nina, I don't know if w- what your experience was of this, but when the people in charge are not competent to be in charge, I wonder if very many children are aware of that that if the parent has the position and the parent is making the calls, it's, it's hard to know sort of what is normal um, at a certain age. It's hard to know, like, is this the way everybody lives and is this just sort of life? Um, I think in a lot of family situations in terms of what to do about it is oftentimes there will be someone, another adult, who is grounded, does have all of the information, and can step in and say, this isn't a decision that you're able to make for other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am an encourager of autonomy, but to have someone sort of reality check a bit about these are decisions that impact a bunch of other people. Yeah. Um, and let's talk through this and let's see if there's another way to go about doing this. Nina, what I thought was so spectacular about the bridesmaid's daughter was how you chronicle your own your own sense of self and well-being and how you knew that you needed to get away from the family dynamic in order to save yourself. Will you talk about that just a little? Yes, I think I needed to um, be 3,000 miles away (laughs) to separate. Um, And I, I had a way when I was young, I think, of attaching myself to very kind, nice, healthy people and families that helped me. I looked for other mother figures to get what I needed. And, um, you know, as I talk about in the book, I lived in the Virgin Islands as a teenager, married very young. Um, 
you know, not the traditional path, but nothing about my path was traditional. And I think in some ways it was a great thing because I was very happy. I developed a good work ethic and I was away from everything and I could just look at it differently. But it's it's really taken so many years to really work through um, all of my feelings about it to be healthy. And really the journey, you know, to write the book was the thing that really just enabled me to feel more comfortable in my own skin and be more confident. I think growing up, I thought everybody else's life was normal. I had no idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jenna, the, uh, the interesting thing about when Nina's mother decides on her own that she is going to actually stay at the shelter where they've given her some temporary care, and Nina attempts to try to convince her, no, we can get you housing, and no, we can get you somewhere safe. And, and, the, and her mother says, no, this is the life that I want. Yeah. I struggled with that part because I kept thinking, how is it any different to allow a person the kind of autonomy that, that Nina set, ultimately says, yeah, okay, it is your life, versus a person, say, for instance, who has Alzheimer's or dementia? Yeah, I think it's really uh, hard to kind of know where that line is. And in our world of things, Brian, and my mental health world of things, that mm-hmm. line is, are you a significant threat to yourself, like your actual well, like, you know, physical well-being or somebody else that is um, a vulnerable population. Like to me, it's very different talking about Nina's mom making the decision for herself to live in a shelter versus the decision to take Nina as a young child to a place that might be um, not ideal um, or problematic for, for a kid. And so that's a, that's a big part of the decision. But I would also say, you know, Alzheimer's is different than things like psychosis or psychological struggles. You know, we, we love to think of mental health problems or mental illness as if it is like cancer, that you could go in and you could have a test and say, yeah. there it is, you have the mm-hmm. disease. Yeah. And these things are on a spectrum. And so we have to kind of know how to navigate like, when do we take the big step of removing somebody's autonomy? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you struggle with that, Nina? The the question of she she really does want this in her life. How do I take that independence away from her? It, yeah. It, at that point in my life, first of all, I was very young in my 20s. And um, she, in some, in, in some ways, it felt like it was her choice. She had... Um, given away a lot of her money. Some of it she lost through stock. She had enough money from the divorce to live okay. Not really well, but she would have been fine. And she gave it away. So at that point in my life, did I understand mental illness or why she was doing any of this? No. And we tried to help her get a job, which when I think about it now, I know how you know, that was just not possible for her. She couldn't handle it. We literally got her a job as a cashier somewhere, and she couldn't maintain it. Um, and she didn't end up in the shelter overnight. It was, a, you know, it was a few years of sort of bouncing around after my sister died, which was just um, another tragedy for her to endure that took her down, an, you know, even darker path. And um, I was never out of touch with her. 
I would go and visit her. I, she called me collect all the time. Um, she was offered a condo in Florida. She was offered a place to live with her mother. She was offered uh, another relative in Ohio offered her a place to live. But she wanted to be back in New York. And there's a part of me in a way that almost respects that. That's where she was happy. Mm -hmm. She'd had enough. Her life had been, you know, all of these tragedies. She would walk the streets of Manhattan. She sat, she was very spiritual. She sat in the little park on 58th Street across from the side entrance to the plaza. And she believed this little park was blessed. And if she sat there every day, that it would be elevated to a shrine for humanity. That was her belief. Um, she, in, in her way, she had a purpose. Of course, mm -hmm. I would like to have seen for her, um, you know, it's just the way that we treat the mentally ill and especially in big cities. My mother would go to the Library for Performing Arts um, many days and she would listen to um, classical music on headphones. So I would love to have seen her given a job, you know, at Lincoln Center or at the library as a volunteer. She was there anyway. It would have given her, um, you know, she would have felt valued in some way. Um, but, you know, so she had her routine, and we just kept trying to help her, and she wouldn't accept it. Even the, the uh, there were officials in Ohio that tried to bring Steubenville's queen back home, and they communicated with Ed Koch, the mayor at the time. And I have the letter where he said, you know, this happens all the time. There are 10,000 people living in shelters in New York City, and quite often they refuse treatment. She would not take medication, and she would not participate in the housing program that they offered her. Brian, so you very, know, this very is complicated. It's funny because it's New York. It's a completely different life, mm -hmm. and yet it's the very similar problem to what we have in Portland, where there is a, a pretty mm -hmm. large percentage. It's probably about 20% mm -hmm. here who don't want assistance. They don't want housing. They want to have this life where they can keep transition and, and be out every morning to explore the city or do what they want to do. Um, what are your feelings about, as a, as a, not just as a family, but as a community, what we do for people who believe so strongly mm -hmm. that they should have the ability to, to have a life this way? Wow. Um, I feel like in some ways that question when it comes to um, a community or population issue, uh, it's above my pay grade <laughs> mm. a little bit uh, in terms of the politics of that and um, and how we swing that in terms of resources. I don't know. But, Nina, the way that you talk about your mom, you mentioned that, that there was a place in there where she said, you know, at least in her eyes, she had purpose. And... Yes. Um, like, that means so much to me that that she felt that she had meaning and purpose and a reason to get up in the morning, even if it isn't something that mm -hmm. I would have chosen for her or mm -hmm. you would have chosen for her, that when in her skin, um, sitting and listening to classical music uh, at that location and expecting something to happen and feeling that she is contributing to something that's bigger than her, probably resonated with her spirit more than being a cashier or a volunteer, mm -hmm. right? And, I mean, this is the crazy thing about autonomy is when you let 
and you know this, you lived this, but when you let people make choices, you're not just letting them make the choices that you would make for them. You're letting them make choices that they're making. And I think there's a difference between making a choice um, to be in a bad situation because you don't, or what what maybe other people would view a bad situation or, or a hard situation, because you don't believe that anything else is possible. Or you're making that choice because this is what I want. This feels like the way I want to live. And, I mean, isn't that what we're all trying to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the thing um, that is so impactful about that idea of meaning and purpose is, you know, in the um, kind of assumptions that I make, uh, how I approach this work, a life of meaning and purpose is available to every single person, regardless of our circumstance and our history or what cards life has dealt us. Yeah. And I just love that there's your mom. And of course, I am not at all kind of glamorizing a choice to live on the streets. Um, and that is a hard life and not one I would want for my loved ones. And even that, and even struggling with something as painful as psychosis, you can still live a life of meaning and purpose. And wouldn't it be amazing if we as a community could see people who are suffering in that way as having the potential mm -hmm. of having a life of meaning and purpose? Mm. And then we might do the things that you were talking about, like, oh, maybe she could volunteer at the Lincoln Center or something like that, yeah. mm -hmm. rather than just how do we get these people out of our sight because yeah. they're freaking us out. Yeah, and, so if I and if I can add, you know, the, the idea of living a life of meaning and purpose, it's meaning and purpose as defined by the person living yes. the life. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly yes. right. Um, Nina, we just have a few more minutes, but I want to know how you stay well now. What are some of the things that you do to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and that you are keeping yourself whole after this entire experience? Well, exercise, <laughs> long walks. Uh -huh. um, but I also have learned, I think, to embrace the pain because I opened all of these doors uh -huh. and they remain open. Mm -hmm. And I think about my mother almost every day. Um, frequently, I'll, I'll cry for five, ten minutes listening. Whenever I listen to classical music, it's a trigger for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I just embrace the pain because um, actually one of your guests, uh, was it Cheryl Strayed, Grief is Love, mm -hmm. she talked about. Um, that just so resonated with me because it made me look at it a little bit differently that um, when I'm in that moment and feeling the pain and tragedy of her life, I realize it's just because I love her so much. Yes. Mm. That's and, beautiful. That's and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Why does that have to be a bad thing? I don't um, allow it to go on. <laughs> you know, it's under a half hour. I have my moment, and then I move on with the rest of my day. And I, I hope mm -hmm. I continue to feel that strongly and passionately about her. I love that you've written this story, and I, I think especially for people who somehow think, oh, if only I had enough money or enough clout mm. or enough charisma that I wouldn't have the problems that I'm having with my mental health. And I think you've written such a wonderful book about, it. It, you know, mental illness impacts every single class, every single segment of society, and your family story is really riveting. Thanks a lot for writing it, Nina. Oh, thank you so much.
Thanks a lot for listening. And if you want to learn more about the ideas that you heard today or find more resources, you can go to our website at beyondwellwithsheilahamilton.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please like us on iTunes or wherever it is you listen. It really helps. Okay, Nina, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, and th- Nina. And, yeah, oh. and thanks to the thank guys you. at the studio. They did a great job. It and, sounds amazing. And Nina, thank you so much for saying what yes. you did about, um, you know, your willingness to feel pain yes. and feel sadness about your mom. Like, I can't tell you how much, I mean, it's a recurring theme in these episodes that we have, and it's a big part of what Jenna and I do that in our work that people feel like what they need to do is get away from all of the bad feelings. Yeah. And and the fact that you're like, no, 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 my sadness highlights my love for my mom. And we only hurt about the things that we care about. I wish you could have seen Brian and me here in the studios when you were talking about that. We were both doing thumbs up and wiggling at each other. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's exactly right. That's That's really amazing. Thank you again, Nina, so much. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful day. You too. All right. Bye-bye.